Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, once again to Action Replay. We are live on DCUFM. My name is Sean Breslin, and we have got just a whole host of people to join us on the show this week. We're joined as ever by Sean Crosby. Hello again. Uh, Sean Comer is back as well. How are you doing, Breslin? And uh, just to bring up the Sean monotony, we've brought Jack Gindley back. Jack, how are you doing today? Oh, grand, Sean. Thanks for having me on today. And it's uh, it's you we're going to start with because, um, oh man, UFC 257 happened this past weekend and Dustin Poirier knocked out Conor McGregor in the second round, avenged his loss from six and a half years ago, put himself right in title contention. But from a McGregor perspective, this has to be so incredibly disappointing. Oh yeah, it is indeed. As a you know, McGregor fan myself, a bit, um, it's disappointing to see him lose. Obviously, but he could have lost to worse people. He said himself in uh, the press conference leading up to the fight that uh, Poirier was definitely you know the toughest lightweight he could have faced, which in my opinion um, is true. You know, uh, it was a good fight. Started off, um, you know, with a decent uh, undercard with a co-main in a. Uh, Chandler versus Hooker, but yeah, definitely, you know, disappointing for us McGregor fans to say the least. Looking at the fight itself, um, the first round was taken by McGregor, in my opinion, but you could see on a rewatch the seeds being planted for the eventual finish because uh, the calf kicks were what were setting it up for Poirier. Now, there's a difference between leg kicks and calf kicks. The leg kicks that McGregor was landing in his rematch with Nate Diaz, which arguably helped him win that fight, were kind of at, at the top part of the leg, kind of like almost the, the quad area or just off to the side of that. Whereas Dustin was targeting the part of the leg just above the ankle. And he was saying in an interview after the fight that when you get that kick right and you land it right in the calf muscle, there's nowhere for the swelling to go, so it just stays there. And McGregor was outboxing him, but the thing, the problem with that boxing style was he was very heavy on his front leg, just like Diaz had been when McGregor attacked his leg. And I do wonder whether that was due to his um, his bringing back his old boxing coach, who has admitted into interviews that he wasn't that into MMA, so he's coming in from a boxing purist perspective. He's heavy on that front leg, he was getting it chopped down. And the the beginning of the finishing sequence was, even though McGregor had been doing really well on the feet, Dustin landed a kick um, and circled away from the fence because McGregor had his back up against, has, uh, Dustin's back pressed up against the fence. And Dustin circled around him and McGregor wasn't able to maneuver himself to get back into a decent position. So suddenly he was on the receiving end of um, the forward pressure. And then Dustin started teeing off with combinations that we've seen before. We saw it in the Eddie Alvarez fight. We saw it in the Justin Gaethje fight, both of which he won. And he won because he got the opponent to melt because they couldn't withstand the storm. And McGregor couldn't withstand the storm. And a really nice right hand would drop McGregor. It was it was interesting because... I thought McGregor McGregor seemed to think, watching the slow-mo replay, McGregor seemed to think that the punch was going to come over. So he kind of ducked down a bit. 
But by ducking down, he walked right into the right hand, caught him on the chin, put him down. The the image of him on the ground has been memed to death up there with the, the Bernie Sanders memes with his mittens. But uh, it's it's a pretty pretty stunning win for Poirier. Kind of shut up a lot of people in the mainstream media who said, oh, why is he fighting this guy? He already beat him. What did you think, Jack, of the kind of, not not so much what the win represents, but how it came about. Am, am I wrong in anything I said there? Um, no, that was that was a great, you know, kind of summary there of the fight. Um, as you were talking about those calf kicks, you know, they really beat up that front leg of McGregor. Um, you kind of distinguish the difference between a calf kick and a leg kick. Uh, leg kick. Those calf kicks, they get um, a bit tender after a while, you know. And it's very hard to miss with them because, as you said, they reach around the back of the leg and they really beat up that calf. And um, McGregor did not help himself at all. He was not checking those correctly. Um, Dustin Poirier even noted afterwards in an interview, he said, Conor McGregor wasn't turning his leg fully over. Uh, so when you check a uh, leg kick, you want to be turning your leg all the way over. So your shin is kind of blocking um, his kick. So your shin bone wants to be um, kind of making contact with a, uh, Dustin Poirier's leg, and he wasn't doing that, so he didn't help himself at all um, there. You know, as you said, the first round, it was intense. It was close. You know, it was back and forward. Um, Dustin Poirier landed at takedown, got a bit of, um, you know, time in the clinch also, uh, which I think Poirier came out at the end with more time um, on top and in a better position. They were going shot for shot. McGregor landed a few shots on Poirier, which, um, you know, they were decent enough shots. Uh, you know, McGregor landed one or a few left hands there, I counted, and um, Dustin ate them up, which I think get, in turn gave him more confidence to go on. As you know, he felt that power of McGregor there, and, you know, um, that's what I think helped him in that clinch. We've seen the... Uh, <laughs> McGregor kind of signature shoulders from uh, the Cerrone fight, which puts Cerrone out. But yeah, um, you know, Dustin Poirier, he was really criminally underrated going into this fight. I thought, um, you know, that he had a very good chance of winning as, you know, it's been six and a half years, as you know, there since their last fight. And Dustin's been uh, active, to say the least. He's always been fighting. He's fought against, you know, the likes of Khabib, Eddie Alvarez, and Justin Gaethje. Um, didn't win against Khabib, but, you know, those other performances were very good and impressive. Also fought against uh, Hooker, who was on the co-main. But, um, yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of faults in McGregor's game there. As you said, he teamed up with Philip Sutcliffe, his old boxing coach um, from Crumlin. You know, I've been up there a few times myself. Uh, he's a good coach, but as you said, he you know he doesn't know nothing at all really about MMA, and you know those sequences of events leading up to the McGregor finish, that calf kick kind of uh, hit him, and McGregor showed that he was in pain, which made Dustin go in for the kill and landed some nice combos. But what I wanted to say there was, um, Connor, you know, got into a bit of a bad habit there on the cage. He started trying to roll and slip off the cage, which you know, is never a good idea in MMA. In boxing, maybe I can understand it because you have the ropes and they move back and forward, but the cage is basically a wall in your way. And, you know, when you're hurt like that, 
you cannot be slipping and rolling on the cage um because you have nowhere to go he could have circled out or he could have got Dustin in the tie clinch or in underhooks if he was hurt but um you know he didn't and he was too kind of boxing reliant there and he was rolling and slipping and eventually he rolled into that right uh hook of Poirier and knocked himself out you know yeah I do think it did occur to me that bringing in his boxing coach uh, relying on that box I, to be honest I thought he had decent head movement but he was getting clipped too much in those exchanges he, he might have had one eye on a potential Pacquiao fight because he's been talking about Pacquiao a lot and even even the YouTuber Jake Paul was calling him out so maybe he did have one eye on the on the boxing endeavors um he actually said in an interview with Ariel Helwani before the the cowboy fight that he wanted a world title in boxing which you know, given the state of boxing, I think he probably could have gotten if he really wanted it. But just going forward, um, I think that I did, I knew how good Poirier was, but even I kind of underestimated him and thought that he wasn't going to beat McGregor. A, a good example of that was when in the lead up to both of their fights with Khabib, I thought McGregor wouldn't win, but had a decent chance to win. Whereas I thought Poirier didn't have a hope. Um, because there was just that dichotomy there. You can't... It's hard to erase the memory of him being knocked out in less than two minutes in 2014. But he's certainly erased that now. And um, uh, the obvious question after a fight like this, after any fight, is what's next? And I want to start with Poirier, because I did feel when this fight announced that it was going to be a title eliminator. I did actually think that it was going to be for the vacant title once Khabib retired, but Khabib's still holding on to the belt for some reason. Poirier, I really think he should be in a title fight next. I think the only question is who does he fight? Uh, yeah, exactly there. Um, that was a title eliminator also, in my opinion. Um, the reason why Khabib is kind of holding on to that title and he hasn't relinquished it yet is because, you know, Dana White is desperately trying to get him to come back and um, defend it. We've seen on uh, looking for a fight um, there throughout the fight week that... Uh, you know, Dana White was kind of asking Khabib during it um, if he'd come back and this, that, and the other. But, you know, after the fight, I seen um, Khabib and Dana on the phone and Khabib said to Dana, be honest with me, I'm so many levels above these guys, um, you know, and basically said he was going to retire. So that title could be up for grabs next. And Dustin Poirier um, is, you know, definitely a fighter which it makes sense for. Um, I think he should be the number one fighter fighting for that uh, belt. But question is, who is he on a fight? Um, you know, there's not that many fights left now because Khabib's gone and, you know, uh, Poirier's already beat Gaethje. He's beat McGregor. Um, you know, he's beaten these guys. So who's next? And for me, I think the most sense, uh, fight that makes the most sense is uh, Charles Cowboy Oliveira. He's coming off a win against Tony Ferguson. He's been doing well lately, uh, switching up his kind of style. And I think that should be the next um, UFC title fight. But, uh, you know, a lot of people want to see this rematch between McGregor and Poirier. And I'm wondering when Poirier is going to take this. I think Poirier should take it after he gets this title shot because he definitely deserves it. And um, he's definitely going to get it, in my opinion, because it doesn't look like Khabib's coming back. Another person you could maybe say uh, 
to get that title shot as Michael Chandler. But, you know, um, going back to that rematch, I don't think uh, it should be made as soon as possible, you know? I honestly think that McGregor has to earn that rematch at Poirier because yeah, exactly. Because Poirier has earned the title shot, and to you, you can't have the McGregor rematch and the title shot in the same fight. From a, from a McGregor perspective, it just doesn't make sense. But I've actually got a list of guys that I think McGregor could and possibly should fight, and um, some are more appealing than, than others. I'll just I'll just go. Um, from least appealing to most appealing, uh, there's Ally Aquenta, who McGregor actually name dropped recently. He's a he's actually a realtor in New York, and he was McGregor was kind of like, oh, he's a realtor, that's mad. So I, I only bring him up because McGregor's mentioned him by name. Uh, there's Dan Hooker, who lost the co-main event, as you mentioned, to Michael Chandler, got knocked out in the first round. Um, I only want to see that because both men are coming off a loss, and also. The Ireland New Zealand thing makes sense to at least followers of rugby. Uh, it's kind of weak, but still. Uh, who's next? Who's next? Oh, yeah, RDA Rafael dos Anjos recently came back to lightweight with a win. Uh, and these guys were actually scheduled to fight five years ago, um, for the lightweight title. RDA pulled out, Nate Diaz stepped in, Diaz beat McGregor. I'm not surprised. History, so there's a bit of unfinished business there. Then there's Paul Felder, who's not the most glamorous name. He was actually on uh, commentary during this fight. But McGregor's been taking shots at him recently about his nickname is the Irish Dragon. And McGregor just can't believe that because he says there's not a drop of Irish blood in him. So I think it'd be pretty easy to build that fight. Um, number two on my list, it might have lost a bit of luster, given that these guys are both coming off losses. But... You can't tell me that a fight between Conor McGregor and Tony Ferguson isn't absolutely delicious. But the most interesting fight that Conor McGregor can take at this moment, in my opinion, is this one. And I just want to set the table for this a bit. There's a lot of talk, there has been a lot of talk about wanting the old Conor back. The 2015 Conor, the 2016 Conor. What that means, maybe in terms of performance, possibly almost certainly actually, but also in terms of his personality, because maybe he was too nice against Poirier. Maybe he needs someone to reignite that fire. And it's obvious that Khabib still reignites that fire in him because he's talking, every time McGregor talks about them, he has, his, he has his hackles up a bit. But Khabib's retired now. So the next best thing, and the fight I think McGregor would be most interesting it would be most interesting for mcgregor is islam makachev who's basically khabib's protege in the lightweight division i remember after khabib beat dustin poirier at the post-fight press conference islam makachev was speaking because he had his win earlier in the night and khabib actually put his belt in front of islam which was a it was about as subtle as a sledgehammer saying you are going to be the next champion from from this camp because Dagestan Russia, well, Russia, but more specifically Dagestan, it looks like they're going to become the next dynasty in MMA, kind of like what Brazil was in terms of consistently producing top level fighters. And there's a few of them in the UFC, but it looks like Islam Makachev is the closest out of any of them to the title. Now he's not too far. I think he's only in the, he's only just on the periphery of the top 10, 
But the fact that there's this connection to Khabib and the fact that it could raise McGregor's iron, be more trash talky, would I think would help him. And I think he kind of needs that trash talk to kind of rebuild himself almost in the in the in the casual audience as well. Because one of the reasons they were drawn to McGregor was because of his trash talk. And I think it's it's a pretty easy fight to build. Stylistically, it's compelling as well. And there might be more lucrative fights for him out there. I've just realized I haven't even mentioned Nate Diaz, the Nate Diaz trilogy. But I think just on a a personal level and for it being a very easy pay-per-view to sell with a storyline, I think that's the way to go. But I don't know about you, but that's what I think. Uh, Yeah, again, that's a great fight. It makes sense. Islam Makhachev obviously coming out of that camp and trained under uh, the late uh, Habib's father, um, you know, so it makes a lot of sense. He was at that fight uh, against, uh, you know, that big fight, Habib versus McGregor. So it makes sense, but that's a very, very dangerous fight for Conor McGregor at this stage. I think if he's going to take that fight, it should be sometime in the future because Islam Makhachev, he's ranked 13 at the moment in the lightweight division. Doesn't necessarily mean he's the uh, 13th best in the division. You know, more like 7th, 6th or 7th, maybe. It's just he's not getting these fights because, you know, not many people want to fight a guy like that who he's ranked 13th. And, you know, you don't want to be taking risks against that guy. Um, You know, if you're the number 8 or the number 9th, you know, like Paul Felder or something. Uh, you don't want to be taking that fight. But, um, yeah, I think the fight for McGregor, if he wants to get back in that title contention, which I wrote down here, uh, he's getting a lot of special treatment in the UFC. We've seen that throughout the years. And I think if we want that to end, I think Conor McGregor should be fighting the likes of um, Justin Gaethje. It makes you know absolute sense. Both guys in recent years have lost to uh, Habib Nurmagomedov and Dustin Poirier, you know, we seen that with Justin Gaethje um, a few years ago against Poirier and most recently against Habib. Gregor wants that, uh, you know, definitive title shot uh, next, you know, which I think Dustin Poirier will have the title against that, uh, again then. I think he needs to fight the likes of um, Justin Gaethje. Again, you mentioned uh, Tony Ferguson. They have a little bit of a rivalry going on, but Ferguson's on two losses now and looks like he's on his way out. He's kind of diminishing slowly but surely but you know it is a good fight there's history behind it but I think uh, at the moment McGregor needs to make the fight which makes the most sense in terms of um, the lightweight division he needs to make that fight that you know will uh, you know be certain that he will get the title shot next Uh, in terms of Nate Diaz you know I've seen people calling for that fight and in my opinion I think it's crazy because that's, you know, that's the fight that makes the least sense, um, in my opinion. Again, for our fan, for the fans, for the casual fans, that's a great fight. But Nate Diaz, as much as I like him myself, he's not ranked at lightweight or welterweight at the moment. So if McGregor wants to kind of redeem himself after that loss, um, he doesn't want to be fighting an unranked fighter. As good as that unranked fighter is, that's not who he wants to be fighting. And I think he needs to fight a kind of top um, lightweight with a decent ranking to kind of renew his stock a little bit. Because as you said there, like, 
the casual fans love him. Um, and, you know, without that trash talk, does it kind of not sell as many pay-per-views? And I think that's, you know, true. And he can definitely make a rivalry between Gaethje because Gaethje spoke about him in the past. I know Gaethje's kind of a nice... McGregor, if you really wanted it, could bring back that trash talk. And I think we need to see him um, make a good fight that makes sense in the future that, you know, won't get in special treatment by fighting, you know, the number 10th, like Aya Quinta or someone like that, you know, because he's not really, you know, in title contention, Aya Quinta. So he needs to fight someone in title contention there, in my opinion. I think I like what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. But I honestly think that he needs to earn his way back into that top five. Because that top five of the UFC lightweight division is just so elite that any loss is severely damaging to your momentum. And so you need to kind of earn your way back in. Hooker earned his way to the fight with Poirier. And that felt like a massive achievement for him because the lightweight division is so stacked. Similarly, Oliveira had to earn his way in by beating Tony Ferguson. It's it's going to be really interesting to see what McGregor is up to moving forward, but um, we'll just have to to wait and see. Uh, someone who won't who will be waiting to see what his next move is as well is going to be Frank Lampard and uh, Crosby. He's he's out. He's out of Chelsea, which I actually found out before Chelsea broke the news themselves. I saw an article that said. Chelsea manager to be sacked and probably replaced by Thomas Tuchel, who used to manage PSG. And I don't know about you, but that seems like a pretty humiliating way to find out you're going to lose your job. Yeah, I think it seems like the whole world knew almost before uh, Frank Lampard. Um, I guess, Comer, I think, well, I assume we can both agree maybe that uh, he probably wasn't the most qualified man for the Chelsea job, but do you think maybe he should have been given more time? He should have been backed by the club, or is that just too much to expect with a club like Chelsea? It's yeah, I think it's a bit too much to expect with a club like Chelsea. I mean, we've seen how cutthroat Abramovich is. We kind of talked about this last week. You know, um, this is a man who sacked Di Matteo what six months after winning the club's first ever Champions League. Uh, he sacked Mourinho, who's the most the most successful manager under Abramovich. Like he sacked him twice at Chelsea. You know, there was. Couldn't wait to run another Premier League winning manager and Sarri out the door. Sorry, uh, Conte. And Sarri, who had finished fourth in his first season, which wasn't terrible. Again, they couldn't wait to run him out the door. So to be ninth with the money they've spent over the last summer is just not good enough. And I think if there's an Abramovich sacking to criticise, this isn't the one. I think that this was probably the right move. I just don't see where it was going with Frank Lampard. I would, though, uh, wonder whether he actually knew he was going to be sacked or not because... Uh, you know, it came out. I think you said it to me yesterday, Crosby, that uh, after the Leicester game, he was shaking players' hands and thanking them for their efforts. So, and the Athletic then further revealed that um, he uh, that after that uh, Leicester game, Tom uh, Abramovich was making calls. Apparently, that was the final straw for him. He was livid in his office the day afterwards. He instantly rang Tuchel to try and get him on. Another thing the Athletic said is that, you know, they'd been interested in Mauricio Pochettino before he took the PSG job, which was last month. So this has been coming for over a month at least. Of course, Frank Lampard probably hasn't known it for over a month, but I think he definitely knew it in the past week that he was probably not going to be there much longer. And it seems that he managed the team Sunday against Luton 
knowing that no matter the result, he was going to be gone the following morning. And yeah, it is a pretty humiliating way to go. You know, he managed to get the Chelsea job, the club he's a legend at, you know, after the Derby, after the that season with Derby where he lost in the playoff final. And uh, he did okay, I thought, his first season. It wasn't perfect, but it was okay. But like I said, to spend that much money and then actually get worse as a squad just isn't right. So I would say that, yeah, this is probably the right decision. Yeah, and, and you mentioned a lot the athletic, and there was a lot of interesting stuff actually came out uh, from the athletic. It kind of it paints a picture of Chelsea Football Club. Like it, re- you really get to see just how political and um, involved the board is. Like there was there was mention of uh, the six players that were bought during the summer. Apparently, Ben Chilwell was the only one that Frank Lampard actually wanted. He never wanted the likes of Werner and Havertz and even Thiago Silva and all these. Um, and I think that's quite interesting because Tuchel looks like he's going to take the job. I don't think, I don't think it's been officially confirmed yet, but he's pretty much, everyone is is waiting for that announcement. And I guess there's two different ways to look at it. Like Thomas Tuchel has been sacked from his last two jobs, Dortmund and PSG. But then at Dortmund, I think he had a better win, uh, win percentage than Klopp. Fair enough, he didn't actually win anything in the end. But um, not the same way Klopp did. And then a PSG got into that Champions League final as well. And um, the, the what's interesting is the reason he was let go of PSG is because of issues he had with the board. And so I'd wonder now, how is he going to fare with a highly political club like Chelsea? Like um, one of the directors, Marina Granovsky, I think I'm pronouncing that horribly probably, um, is like heavily involved with, uh, transfers and stuff like that and Per Cech is quite involved as well and there's rumours that they were trying to keep Kepa and Werner happy when Lampard didn't really want them at all so um, I guess from a football standpoint how do you think Tuchel will fare in, in the Premier League and you know, he, he's probably going to need time and I wonder will he get it and then also can you see him getting along with quite a volatile board at Chelsea? Well, first of all, an interesting thing you mentioned there was how kind of political nearly the board is at Chelsea. And something, I now I might be wrong, but I think this is what I read from yesterday, is that the statement Chelsea Football Club released after sacking Frank Lampard was the first one they'd released under Abramovich after they sacked the manager, which has been you know plenty of times as we've seen, where Abramovich's words were actually in the statement, which tells you that maybe this wasn't the easy decision for him. You know, he probably knew he had to make it, but... He probably has somewhat of an emotional attachment to Lampard because of how great a player he was at Chelsea. And then, you know, you on Tuchel, however, you know, you bring up the Dortmund thing, the win percentage, better win percentage than Klopp. It is a smaller sample size than Klopp, to be fair. Klopp was at Dortmund seven years. Meanwhile, Tuchel was only there for two. And his sacking seemed somewhat harsh in the end because he, uh, I think the year he was sacked, they finished fourth and they won the cup. But they kind of collapsed in spots at times. You know, there was the famous loss at Anfield in the Europa League the year before, which, you know, must have been a huge, you know, damage to their confidence. But, you know, it was weird for Dortmund to actually hire this guy, you know, after they'd had Klopp for seven years, who'd become a club legend. And then after two, not two terrible years, they decided to move on from him. So I don't know, maybe something went on behind the scenes there. Meanwhile, at PSG, it's, it seems like a really, you know, Terry, it should be easy to succeed at PSG because of the amount of money they have and the amount of players they have. But with those players, you know, we talked about it last week as well, I think, with Pochettino or whenever it was. It, an interesting thing about Pochettino is whether he can 
manage the egos at PSG and maybe the problem with Tuchel was that he couldn't. And, you know, from the outside looking in, it looked a big reason why he was sacked at PSG. You know, you mentioned the board, but they were third or something in League 1. And, you know, they're the most, they're the richest club in France by, I'd say, a country mile. So, you know, I don't see this guy lasting long at Chelsea. I think he's a decent manager, you know, despite being sacked from his last two jobs. I think he's all right. But it'll be hard for him to turn things around in mid-season because, you know, it's just, it's extremely hard to do things on the fly as a manager like that. You know, you he'd want time if you think, you know, this is the guy moving forward. And I also think a big part of the appointment is that they're hoping he can, you know, kind of restore confidence to the German players like Werner and Ziyech because they just have not been up to scratch this year at all. So I think with Tuchel, you might see, you know, there, might, there also might be a honeymoon period somewhere in here where they're inevitably going to get a few good results and maybe those guys will look better. But I think that, you know, this feels like a somewhat of a short-term fix for Chelsea. So I don't really see Tuchel lasting too long there because A, of how throat cut, cut throat, sorry, Chelsea are and B, just how his last two jobs have ended. It seems to be a disencouraging pattern for him. Yeah, it um, doesn't look great on that front. You mentioned maybe he can get the best out of Werner and Havertz, and that was actually another thing mentioned in that in the Athletic that um, the board wanted a German-speaking manager, someone to try and connect with the likes of Werner and Havertz. So, in some regards, it does seem like they've got their man, but uh, you never know with Chelsea. But uh, a football club who, well, initially it looked like they didn't have the right man for the job, but. Right now, it's going pretty well. Uh, it's Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and his Manchester United team uh, who bet Fulham 2-1 during the week. And, well, they're, they're continuing to ride their luck, really. And it seems like this might be, it might be more than just a wave. Um, but even, I guess, criticism, if you wanted to find criticism in that win, you could look at the fact that they are relying on individual talent. Like, it was, it was 30 seconds of of kind of genius from Fernandez where he got on the ball and he managed to get it across for Cavani who latched onto a mistake from the goalkeeper. And then of course the winner is Paul Pogba, who's now found his shooting boots. And, you know, I guess one thing you'd say is they can't always rely on Paul Pogba to find space from 25 yards out to win games. But uh, it's, it's an interesting one with Solskjaer because you do watch that United team and like, there doesn't seem to be really any game plan other than Bruno, Pogba and like the likes of Cavani and a few others are going to turn up. And particularly the two men in midfield, and Fernand- Bruno Fernandes and Paul Pogba. So I guess, you know, there's a lack of tactics there. And could, could you see that being detrimental, particularly against the top six teams, which is which is what he needs. They, they need to beat at least someone in the league in the top six to um, push for this title. So uh, can you see him? tweaking it somehow to work in that way or can can he just kind of continue this luck of just individuals bailing him out of jail when he needs to be or will they come up against the likes of City and even lesser inspired and fall short? Uh, I definitely agree with you on the sense that, you know, they're relying on moments of individual brilliance for United. Now, you could give him credit for, you know, these players finally being able to find some form, you know, by all of a sudden is playing well at the back. Pogba, like you said, have found his shooting boots, which is something United fans like yourself have been waiting, what, four years for? You know, Fernandez has, you know, just came, you know, just perfect. You know, he's been perfect since he came into United, I think. And then, you know, you've got very good talent up front in Rashford, Cavani and Greenwood. 
So, yeah, it's it definitely it definitely feels like individual brilliance because I'm not sure what United's tactics are. I think you kind of spelled it out perfectly there. I've never been sure what Solskjaer's tactics are. Um. So, and another quote I've heard before in sport is that hope is not a strategy, and it feels like if United are going to continue down this path, then hope is their strategy. And you know, if that's you're playing with fire, if that's your strategy, and um, you know, they will be teams like Fulham and whatnot, and you know, they might be able to make a good cup run, you know, as we saw from their performance against Liverpool at the weekend. But I think when it comes to the league and you're facing those other top six teams and you come up with a manager like Mourinho who has a solid game plan likely in place, then it will cost them. So I'm going to, I won't believe United are actually going to challenge for the title until I see them beat a top six team in the league in like, you know, a big statement win. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely, it's needed. It's kind of a requirement for for winning the league, obviously. But um, you, you, like we've seen it, we've obviously seen maybe they're not the most comparable but you know we have seen Leicester do it sometimes teams just can get lucky and um, I guess Bresen kind of something I wanted to ask you was because we were talking about he doesn't have these kind of this tactical nous and he's just kind of relying on the individuals if if that was enough to get over the line this year and maybe it's it's a ridiculous question to ask like just hypothetically if he were to win the Premier League should he still remain in the job because it doesn't look like he really tweaks much. It looks like it's just kind of hoping that the players come good. And that's not really um that's not really a great long term strategy. So do you do you think that even if he were to win the league, does that still does that make does that qualifying for being the right man for the job? Honestly, I have a little bit more hope uh for Manchester United because I know it was a cup game, but I was reassured by what I saw against Liverpool on Sunday. They um they were they were a much different team than they were against Anfield in the league. Whereas in the league they were kind of tentative and kind of waiting for Liverpool to hit them. They were more than ready to come out and properly attack Liverpool in the in the cup game. Now, yeah, yeah, it's the cup, but it does it does show me something that they can they they can they can rise to that occasion. I think they can get away with the individual feats of brilliance against some of the smaller teams. I think they got Sheffield United coming up soon. But um, I think once the once the, the crunch games come around, they won't they might not win them, but I don't think they'll roll over. It doesn't mean that they're gonna win the league. Um but uh I, I think that they'll they'll put in a good account of themselves regardless of how they do. And to, to sack a manager after um after they win the league is is nonsense. There's a reason we all couldn't believe it when, as you mentioned, Di Matteo was sacked at Chelsea a few weeks, a few months even after he won the Champions League, because it, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's um it's certainly a cutthroat business and there's not a lot of loyalty to managers. One one manager in particular who it's kind of some of the stuff here is a bit ridiculous, like with questioning whether he'll stay in the job. But it is Jurgen Klopp with Liverpool kind of on a, on a down, down bit of form at the moment, uh, losing 1 0 to Burnley uh, at home in the league. First time in 60, I think it was 68 games on being at home. And uh, I guess Jack, just to just a kind of, well, it's a simple question, but it's not a simple answer. 
like what is going on with Liverpool? Do you think it's just burnout, really? Like I know there's the injuries and stuff, but is it just the players are just so burnt out from the last two or three years of being just so competitive? Uh, yeah, definitely you could say that. You know, um, even without the injuries, we're seeing players like Trent Alexander Arnold. He's not playing the best at the moment, and you know, Andy Robertson again. You know, he's not the best we have seen him, but you know, I think yeah, you're right. We are burning out. We have spent a lot of time in the last few years improving constantly, and you know, two Champions League finals in the last few years, and. Obviously, winning the Premier League last year, but you know, because of COVID, you you can make kind of different, you know, opinions on that. But definitely, I think um, being burnt out is, you know, an accurate theory as to why we're not doing so well. You know, the top the guys at the front, Roberto Firmino. I talked, I think, about uh, him the last time I was on here. You know, he was at the missing a few um, goals. He's not very accurate on goal and you know it's a bit of a shambles at the moment will we come back you know to our winning ways this season I don't think so you know you mentioned the injuries Van Dijk, Gomez, Diogo Jota you know they're some of the guys we have injured and you know it's not looking great at the moment and you know I think to count Liverpool out uh, at the moment I think would be a fair assumption yeah, it um, it's it's an interesting kind of situation they find themselves in, and you you mentioned a lot like this with the injuries and stuff, and um, I guess one thing is, it, it, you know, there's you look at like the issues within the squad as well, Comer, and like Wayne Alum doesn't look like he's going to sign a new contract. There's always been there's always been issues with Salah's commitment and stuff, and um, I guess is do you think maybe a rebuild is needed? And could Klopp be given that time to do so? Um, and another thing I kind of was thinking of as well is, you know, will he be just too stubborn to change his ways? And we've seen kind of, you've two great examples of two kind of somewhat stubborn managers leaving their clubs at different times. So Ferguson got out at the right time at United, but then Wenger never knew when to leave Arsenal. And could you see a situation like that happening with Klopp, if this really does spiral out of control, or do you think, do you think he'll be able to, maybe I guess to simplify it, just do, would, he, would, he, would he be able to kind of rebuild the team quickly enough, or do you think he'll be given the time to do so? Uh, I don't think it's going to spiral out of control um, too badly. I think Liverpool are going to eventually pick up a few results here and there because they have to, and I think you know they probably won't win the title, but a top four finish is likely, um, I still think, for this team because I just I don't see them finishing outside it. I think if that does happen, then yeah, surely you can hit the panic buttons. But uh, I think maybe what you're looking at in the summer is, first of all, I wouldn't be, I, w- I wouldn't think uh, Klopp's job is under threat at all. I think that would be madness because of what he's achieved there. You know, that's only last season they won the league with 99 points. The season before that, they were brutally unlucky and you know, they've won a Champions League and everything under this man, it's been constant progression. And I think now it's like maybe they're at the top of their game and maybe they've been figured out a bit. I've seen it compared to his Dortmund squad after they won two leagues in a row where, you know, there was some what burnout there. I think you, you used the term burnout. I think that's maybe the perfect way of describing this situation. So, yeah, I think the issue probably lies more with the squad. You know, there are 
issues there like the injuries and whatnot but some of the players just aren't playing well I think Firmino has been bad for the most part this season he's had his moments and I thought he played all right Sunday but uh, his form is somewhat unacceptable Salah a bit concerned by him even though like Firmino he played well Sunday you know you brought up Wijnaldum I think he's probably going to move on to Barcelona in the summer and give himself a new uh, new challenge you know Alexander-Arnold and Robertson aren't playing well like Jack said um, so but I don't know if you need a total rebuild. I think, you know, this is still a team full of winners. And I think that Klopp is still under contract with Liverpool for another four or five years, I think, because he only signed a contract extension last year. He added two years on to uh, the end of his previous deal. So I think that what Liverpool need to do during the summer maybe is just retweak the squad. I think that there might be some deadwood there. And I think that maybe you have to move those guys on. And, you know, there, there is talent out there to get, you know, I think that, uh, you know, Erling Haaland is someone I think they have to look at because he's available for something like seventy-five million or something. Dortmund have a cheap release clause on him, and I don't, I can't think of a club in world football that should not be on that Haaland deal. I think that if he's available for that money, you absolutely have to be on it if you can get it. So that's someone I'd like to see play for Liverpool, whether it would happen or not, is another thing. There's been links to Mbappe, but <laughs> that's one I'll believe when I see you. You know, as a Liverpool fan, it'd be great to see Mbappe playing, but. You know, I don't know whether it's realistic or not. So I don't think a total rebuild is needed. I think it's more of a rejig where, like I said, just let some of the deadwood move on, sell them, let them walk, make their own decision, whatever. And, you know, put faith in Klopp because it's paid off before when you are when you allow him to have time to build a squad, as we've seen. So, yeah, I don't think a total rebuild is needed. I think in the summer, you know, bring new players in. Klopp should be given the time. Uh, to rebuild the squad or to rejig it, as I said. So, yeah, I don't think a total rebuild is needed here. Yeah, and may, uh, might be some of the stuff you see about him is a bit extreme, but um, one manager who definitely tweaked his style of play over the season, it's, it's come good for them, uh, is Pep Guardiola and Man City, who uh, are obviously looking like everyone's favourites for the league. But um, against Villa uh, during the week, they... They didn't look the same kind of dominant self they have looked over the last few weeks. There was um I don't know if you saw the first goal of Bernardo Silva, but there was huge controversy controversy over um whether that should have stood or not with Rodri being offside when the ball was played at first. Um if you have seen it, I'd like to get your opinion on it. But also um City, I don't know, apart from that game, they did look questionable at the back against Villa. And if Villa had taken their chances, it could have been a very very different game. So I guess, and now with De Bruyne injured as well, do City look as invincible as they first appeared or should they still have enough really to be the favourites here and go on and win this league? Uh, I don't think they're invincible as they've proved this season. They've had some bad results here and there. And so, but, you know, I think they probably will still uh, go on a march to the title because they're just the team best in form at the right time. Uh, I didn't really watch the game, but I definitely saw that Rodri offside incident, which was a bit weird, I think, to put it lightly. It's more of this frustration with the inconsistency of VAR, which I think is has actually made the controversy around officiating worse since it came in. And as the week as the weeks go by, it becomes you know, the reason for having VAR becomes less and less valid because like I said, you'd nearly prefer a human error to, you know, VAR, you know, causing an error or the referees looking at VAR and not doing it correctly or whatever. So, you know, that's a whole other discussion. But on City, 
you know, you mentioned how they weren't great against Villa, but that does feel the side of a tight that does feel like a title winning team. You know, you don't play well against a good team like Villa, but you still win two 0 So while City will probably drop points before the end of the season, I think that because the season is just so weird and because other teams around them are dropping points, Liverpool are not doing well. We discussed United how they've a bit of a you know, hope is not a strategy and it seems that United are going to depend upon it. Uh, I still like City to win the title this season, but, you know, they will drop points here and there, but I still fancy them for the league. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be an interesting uh, watch for the next few weeks, but um, it's not. it wasn't the only football that took place uh, over the last week. There's been a lot going on in the NFL, uh, Breslin. I was muted there. Sorry about that, lads. Uh, yeah, the NFC and AFC championship games, essentially the Super Bowl semifinals, uh, happened this past Sunday. Uh, the Kansas City Chiefs, the, the reigning defending Super Bowl champions, are going back to the showpiece event. They had a pretty comfortable victory over the Buffalo Bills. But the real story was in the NFC championship game where... Tampa Bay Buccaneers are through to their only their second Super Bowl ever. Um, and it's going to be in their home stadium in Tampa Bay. Uh, they beat the Green Bay Packers, who I think were heavily favored to win that game. Uh, Tom Brady proving that he is a, a true great of American football, if that wasn't obvious already. I asked you last week, Comer, if um, it was a case of Tom Brady kicking, dragging this team, kicking and screaming through the playoffs. And you said it wasn't really. Um, But I think the fact that Brady has done this, it's got to lend further credence to that argument. Uh, Well, not not, not particularly, because on Sunday he threw three interceptions in the second half and all of them were on him. Now, it's kind of the opposite to the game he had in New Orleans in the divisional round where he started off poorly but then ended the game hot. In Green Bay on Sunday, he started the game absolutely on fire, threw a touchdown to Mike Evans on the opening drive. There was some questionable defending from Kevin King, the Green Bay Packers cornerback, but still, it was a nice touchdown. There was that Hail Mary at the end of the first half where he absolutely flung it deep to Scotty Miller and again, some questionable defending by Green Bay, but give Tampa Bay credit, they caught Green Bay out and punished them for it. But in the second half, Tom Brady turned the ball over three times, which Green Bay never really took advantage of. First one, he threw it into double coverage. The throw was never on, not really sure what he was thinking. The second one came after it tipped off Mike Evans because he overthrew Mike Evans. And Mike Evans is six foot five. How you overthrow someone that's six foot five in any way, shape or form I have no idea, but Brady managed to do it and the Green Bay Packers picked him off for it and their offense couldn't take advantage of it. And then the third interception, he was pressured uh, off the right-hand side of his offensive line. I forget the Green Bay Packers defender that came through on him. Now, he should have been picked up by the running back Leonard Fournette who was blocking, but Brady knew he was under pressure, so he just flung it up there and he completely underthrew it to Mike Evans. And again, it was another easy interception for the Green Bay Packers, but then again, the Green Bay Packers couldn't really take advantage of uh, the situation. But, you know, it is very very much uh, a credit to Tom Brady that this is his 10th Super Bowl. I'm not sure anyone will ever come close except Patrick Mahomes, maybe. But, you know, I, I think Tampa Bay showed on Sunday that they're not all just about Tom Brady. He's a big part of why they're successful, but 
I thought their defensive coordinator, Todd Bowles, called a great game against the likely league MVP, Aaron Rodgers. But the main talking point from this game, I think, is the decision Green Bay made with just over two minutes to go where they were on fourth and goal from the Tampa Bay 8. They had to put it into the end zone because they were eight points down. Um, And the Green Bay Packers head coach, Matt LaFleur, decided to kick a field goal. And the Green Bay Packers then gave the ball back to Tom Brady. They were still trailing and because of the time on the clock Tom Brady only needed to pick up a couple of first downs which you know he did uh, to kill the game and it was just a ridiculous coaching decision from Matt LaFleur it was cowardly is the only way to describe it he was afraid to actually risk tying the game up which makes no sense instead he went extremely extremely conservative took a field goal was still losing and you know he's really kind of made the mood around Green Bay terrible with this because now Aaron Rodgers, who, like I said, is the league MVP, you should trust the ball in his hands. Matt LaFleur didn't for whatever reason. They tried to draft his replacement last year in Jordan Love. And I'm just wondering about Rodgers' future in Green Bay. He could move on in the offseason because he might look at what LaFleur did on Sunday, look at what they did in the draft last year and think, you know, what what am I really here for? I should probably move on and try to get my second Super Bowl ring somewhere else. So that was the main talking point from that game. But on Tom Brady, if he throws interceptions like that against the Chiefs in the Super Bowl, he probably won't get away with it. And like I said, he was lucky to get away with it Sunday, but no, in the grand you know, scheme of his career, it is a credit that he managed to uh, make it to his 10th Super Bowl. But like I said, he'd probably want a better performance in Tampa in on Sunday week. Uh, and we will have our Super Bowl preview next week on the show. We'll have Comer back. He'll talk Tom Brady versus Patrick Mahomes, whether or not the Chiefs can build their own dynasty by successfully defending the Super Bowl, and whether home field advantage for the first time ever in the Super Bowl, by the way, will pay dividends for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But the last thing I want to talk about on the show today is the Olympic Games. Now, this would not normally be in an Olympic year, but of course, 2020 was not a normal year. And the Tokyo Olympics were pushed back one year. And it was thought that that would be ample time for the pandemic to dissipate and to get everything ready and give us a spectacle worthy of the Olympic Games. That might not happen because um, I don't need to tell you what's going on in the world at the moment. And um, the people of Japan are getting increasingly skittish. Um, I'm pretty sure that if the, Olymp- when the, if the Olympics go ahead, it won't really look anything like the Olympics normally look, which is kind of par for the course with sports events nowadays. But there is growing sentiment in Japan that maybe it shouldn't even happen at all. Um, the, uh, the president of the Olympic Games, I think, said that there's currently no plans to postpone but if the pandemic continues the way it is, will athletes from around the world even be able to get into Japan? And would it even work if the attitude in Japan is so shifty towards the games even happening at all? So I just want to get all your uh, appraisals on this. First Jack, then Crosby, then Comer. What do you make of the situation that the International Olympic Committee and Japan find themselves in as it relates to the games and the pandemic? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a sticky one, you know. it You can't really predict whether everything's going to go smoothly with coronavirus. Um, but, you know, by the summer, 
it definitely could be done. You know, we see in other sports. I know it's not like other sports; it's not um, you know, professional, obviously, but it's been handled well. If you look at NBA, the bubble they had going on there. If they really wanted the Olympic Games to go on, I think they could. But I definitely understand the concerns. You know, Japan at the moment are doing very well uh, in handling coronavirus, and you know, to kind of threaten the um. You know, the good system they have going over there, I completely understand that. Obviously, it is disappointing, you know, not to be seeing the Olympics as, you know, it's a it's a thing to look forward to in the summer when everything's kind of in the off-season. And, you know, I know in boxing, they had a very strong squad um, picked for 2020 and it didn't go ahead. But, you know, you can completely understand it not going ahead, although it is disappointing, um, you know, you can't do much about it. Crosby? Um, yeah, I guess, I don't know, Jack makes some good points that it is possible, like he compares it to the bubble in the NBA, so it certainly is possible, but uh, you mentioned as well, like, you know, would athletes even really want to go from it risking, and similarly enough, we saw that in the bubble, with Kyrie Irving didn't go to the playoffs, and I think a few others from the Nets didn't as well, and so you'd wonder, like, would it, you know, all it takes is one kind of major athlete to just say, no, this isn't worth my time. And it kind of, you can imagine it would kind of tarnish the this year's uh, Olympics. But um, I, I don't really know. I, I, like, I couldn't imagine watching an Olympics with no fans either. Like, surely that's, that's a huge thing for them as well. Because I imagine that is where a lot of the money from gate receipts is probably the main thing for the Olympic Committee anyway. And so it would just be a very it'd be a very jarring experience like it's weird enough watching a football match with no crowd but i couldn't imagine watching like the 100 meter sprint and absolutely no one in the stadium to watch it um and so personally unless things have really kind of um gone better by the summer i i personally don't think that it should go ahead and uh comer yeah i definitely think that the nba bubble is a def- is an interesting point but the difference is that you know, with the NBA poll, you were only taking players in from over the continent if you want to count Toronto in with the United States. With the Olympics, it will be a lot more people coming in, a lot more athletes coming in, and it's from all around the world where all the COVID situations are different. You know, you compare, say, a country like New Zealand where the COVID situation is basically non-existent to a country like Brazil where it's completely out of control. So I, I don't know if it can be done because of the sheer size of people that have to come in and whatnot. And I would agree that it probably shouldn't go ahead because if the citizens of Japan are concerned about this, it would feel like you're kicking them in the teeth to say back to them, you know, oh, well, you know, we're not going to listen to your concerns, you know, Uh, during the middle of a pandemic, we're going to maybe jeopardize your country's COVID situation. So yeah, I don't think it should go ahead. It's a pity, but I think you, you have to be sensible here and, public health has to take place. I just think that it's too risky to do it. Uh, so, yeah, I do not think the Olympics should go ahead. Pretty grim stuff. And we'll keep you up to date uh, with uh, news as soon as we get it on Action Replay. But that's going to do it for this episode. If you want to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, you can do so at DCUFM Sport. It's on the screen right there. Jack, Crosby, Comer, as ever, many thanks for your contributions. Thanks very much. Thank you. Cheers for having me on. Uh, I've been Sean Breslin. This has been Action Replay on DCUFM. Thank you so much for listening. 
and we'll see you next week.